0: Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Mullen and I talk about legal theory and uh, whatever else is on our mind. So Sam, I heard there's something going on about the Supreme Court. What's up with that, man?
1: You know, just, yeah, f- uh, full disclosure, this just came to my attention too, and I've just been reading up on it. Apparently there's a commission appointed by Joe Biden to consider changes to the Supreme Court. Uh, and What we've done is, you know, invited two uh, gentlemen who testified before that commission this last summer, Chris Kang from Demand Justice and Noah Feldman from Harvard Law School. And my understanding is you've testified in front of this commission, even though you've just heard of it. Oh, well, I've suppressed it. Uh, But it, it may have to come up in the midst of the podcast that I have my own views on the topic. Sam Moyne has views on topic. We're shocked. Um,
0: um, anyway, uh, uh, we should we should get to it because it was a really fun discussion. Um, and so uh, with that, let's get to it. Uh, let's get to know Chris. You know what institution no one ever talks about, but is actually quietly very important? The Supreme Court. So we thought we'd talk about the sp- about Supreme Court reform uh, today. Um, right before the November election, you may recall, faced with questions about court packing following the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, now President Biden announced that he would create a commission to study Supreme Court reform. That commission now exists. It's co-chaired by Bob Bauer and uh, my colleague, Sam and my colleague, uh, and former Digging a Hole guest, and most importantly, Christina Rodriguez. Um, today, we're going to talk about what the commission should do and what the right path forward for court reform is, if any. And we've got great guests to cut it up on this topic. Um, Both of our guests uh, testified in front of the commission, as did Sam. We have with us uh, Christopher Kang, who is the co-founder and chief counsel of Demand Justice, a group committed to building a progressive movement to restore ideological balance and legitimacy to our nation's courts. He uh, served in the White House for nearly seven years as deputy counsel to President Obama and a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. Chris oversaw the election, the the selection rather, Um, we're not in state courts here, the selection, vetting and confirmation of more than 220 of the president's judicial nominees. Noah Feldman is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and the Chairman of the Society of Fellows at Harvard. He specializes in constitutional studies with a particular emphasis on the relationship between law and religion, free speech, constitutional design, and the history of legal theory. In 2003, he served as the Senior Constitutional Advisor to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq and subsequently advised members of the Iraq Iraqi Governing Council on the Drafting of the Transitional Administrative Law or Interim Constitution. He's the author of, I don't know, like 118 Bucks, uh, perhaps most relevantly for this discussion, Scorpions, the Battles and Triumphs of FDR's Great Supreme Court Justices. Um, So welcome to the pod.
1: Thanks for having us. All right. So thanks, Chris and and Noah, for joining. You know, we're in the interregnum. We don't know what the commission is going to do. I loved your testimony, both of you. Um, But what what I'm going to do is just kind of lay out what I see as two stark differences it, between your two positions, so I can understand who's right on each uh, front. Um, and hopefully, by the end of the podcast, even if we don't agree, we can figure out wh- what 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 what's the nature of these two differences. So, Chris, uh, your testimony I found really moving. You you call to depoliticize a Supreme Court you say you once loved. Uh, And saw as above and beyond politics, but have only seen fall into politics and partisanship. So just to give our listeners the flavor of your amazing and eloquent testimony, you say the fiction of an apolitical judiciary while Republicans dismantle it only hastens the politicization and cannot stem it. Uh, And on the basis of that, Uh, sense you call for court packing and other reforms to extricate the court from politics and again in your words achieve balance you say that the goal ought to be uh quoting you one last time unilaterally working toward an apolitical judiciary so that's your stance uh getting the court back above politics through reform noah your testimony seems effectively opposite Uh, you say the, the, the court is inevitably political. Uh, the view you're propounding, you say in your testimony is not in italics based on the claim that there is no political element to constitutional decision-making. Uh, and so if that's right, not only was the court never apolitical, it can't be, uh, but then you insist that there's no alternative to its current form. Uh, and so you, you have one voice that asserts a law politics distinction in the name of reform and the other that acknowledges its flim- flimsiness in the name of doing nothing or, in fairness to Noah, pressuring the justices to keep, keep in line. And so this, these seem like two really stark differences, both like what the problem is uh, and what the solution is, and so I'd I really just like to work out, you know, if there if those contrasts are are, are real, um, and where they go. So, Chris, I'd just love to, you know, start with you. Um, could you just talk for a sec about, you know, your your experience of the Obama years when you participated in, you know, um, vetting just judges, getting them ready for confirmation. Um, and and kind of how you've evolved politically and the way you describe
2: in your testimony. Yeah, so, uh, so I appreciate that. I, I don't know that I, I said that I love the Supreme Court, um, but I do think that, you know, I think part of this is sort of hearkening back to elementary school, where you learn about the three branches of government and checks and balances, and the Supreme Court is supposed to be independent and impartial, and I think that that is a noble ideal. I don't know that I disagree with, Um, know that much about sort of what the reality is, but I think that's an ideal. And so I think for example, when you're vetting judges or considering potential judges, um, it's a very should be Uh, a very different kind of lawyer than you might consider for a policymaker, for a legislator. And I think that's part of this is that I think politics is definitely involved certainly in the selection of judges and the confirmation of judges. Um, But I don't think that the judges should be making decisions based on their personal political policy preferences. And I think that that is where I think sort of we have to diverge. And that's what I think part of the problem is right now. I think right now we've seen generations of, conservative activists seeking to install more and more ideologically extreme justices who seem more inclined to rule based on their personal preferences or political preferences, rather than on the rule of law, rather than on precedent. And I think that that is the kind of thing that really has to be balanced out over time in order for our democracy to really flourish. Uh, so it, it, it is, it give us a sense
1: of kind of the, the moment you, you kind of accepted Um, for yourself that, you know, something had gone too far and the, 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 the court's justices, or at least enough of them had, had kind of strayed beyond uh, the, the, their, their role, which you, you kind of see as, as proper of interpreting the law, you know, without regard to politics. I mean, when, when did that come home to you that this, this was an event that happened Um, and somehow needed to be fixed.
2: So I think that there's sort of been a continuum of things in which that I think undermine the court's legitimacy. On the one hand, you have the way that politicians and Republicans in particular have approached the confirmation process of the courts. Um, And so... Denying President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, even a hearing and stealing that seat from from him, you know, installing Merrick Garland, changing the Senate rules so that Garland or so that Gorsuch could be confirmed by a simple majority when he proved too extreme to get the necessary bipartisan support, Um, then rushing through Kavanaugh's confirmation. You know, despite credible allegations of sexual assault as well as perjury, and then here ramming through Justice Barrett's confirmation after 60 million Americans have already voted, sort of sets the stage now for a conservative supermajority that's going to be in place for decades to come. I think on that continuum for me, it was probably around the time that Kavanaugh was confirmed, right? It wasn't even just the theft of a Supreme Court seat or putting in Gorsuch and changing the rules. That was not the moment for me where I was like, oh, this is a bridge too far. I think for me personally, it was it was Kavanaugh. I think for other people, personally, it's been Barrett. Um, but then on the other side, you have sort of the jurisprudence that I think is getting more and more um, out of control and in particular with respect to democracy whether it's citizens united or shelby county versus Holder or partisan gerrymandering or voter purges. you saw bernovich and now you're sort of seeing um what the court has done in the texas abortion ban and so i think that sort of for a lot of different people it will be a different case that sort of is that moment where they're like well now Now, I really don't have confidence in the court. And I think that that is sort of reflected in the latest Quinnipiac poll, which shows that support for the Supreme Court is now underwater. Only 37 percent approve and 50 percent oppose based probably because the poll was just taken after the Supreme Court's shadow docket decision in in Texas. Really, I think people are starting to question the legitimacy of the court and whether or not it's making its decision based on law rather than politics. Okay, so. It's it's one
1: or another of Mitch McConnell's hijinks uh, in the kind of confirmation process, and and then the kind of kind of longer term right wing drift of of the jurisprudence. Noah, um, you know, before we get to kind of uh, kind of the, the 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 stark difference between you two about what to do, I really want you know theoretically to understand whether you you differ. Um, because Chris has has said that, you know, something happened that made the court political. And I just want to understand, are you denying that? Are you saying the court was always political?
3: It's just that that's, that's acceptable or tolerable? What? So uh, thanks for having me. Um, and I want to say I have a lot of respect for the incredible work that Chris has done that he's still doing. And so the disagreement that I'm going to express, which is, as you said, stark. Um, should be separated from any, uh, you know, any lack of personal respect. There is not. And I have great, great personal respect for the, for the work that Chris has done and that he's doing. I also think that Chris and others who share his views, which I think are very mainstream views in many ways, more mainstream than what I'm going to say. Well, it depends on which mainstream, more mainstream in some circles Mine minor, maybe more mainstream in, among a, a different generation of, uh, of, of, uh, legal liberals
0: or in um, America,
3: but yeah, keep going. Yeah. Or in America. Um, but in any event, um, you know, I think that, uh, that the aspirations are wonderful aspirations, and I and I respect them, and share and share in many of those. So with that with that preface, um, the Supreme Court is a political institution. It was designed to be a political institution. That's why its members are selected by the president and confirmed by the Senate. It is independent in the technical sense that the justices serve during good behavior, which has been interpreted to mean in life tenure. And that confers a degree of independence. But it would be not only by that design aspect, strange to call it non-political, it would not be logically possible for it to be non-political because one of the things that the court does is interpret the constitution. We'll leave statutes out of it just to make it simpler. And the constitution is not self-explanatory. It has to have a theory to tell you how to understand it. And that theory involves a sense of how political morality should be arranged. And that doesn't matter whether it was an early republic debate about strict constructionism versus loose constructionism, as it were, Hamilton, uh, sorry, Madison versus Hamilton, or whether it's the debate about originalism of the 80s or 90s, or the debate about traditional activism of the 50s and 60s, or the debates, I'm sorry, I'm taking these out of order, or the debates about the libertarian interpretation of the constitution of the Lochner era against progressives. In every one of those periods, people of good faith on opposite sides of political questions, crucial political questions, were interpreting the constitution in light of their political values. So there's no other way to do it. It's not designed to be non-political. And so when I heard Chris talk about what they teach you in elementary school, I thought of, Sam, maybe you can relate to this. We both went to similar kinds of elementary schools. They taught me many beautiful things in elementary school very few of them are the kinds of things that you would want to believe on mature consideration. And so the this, this sort of the civics conception is an, it's an oversimplification. And once you get a more sophisticated understanding of how an institution like the Supreme Court is designed and works, you see that it couldn't conceivably be non-political. Now, last point, there is a difference between partisanship and being political. Um, it's not a precise line, but as words, they each pick out something. And partisanship, roughly speaking, is when you vote because your party is pressing you to vote a certain way, classically associated with people in a parliament or a Congress. And it is possible for the justices to strive to be nonpartisan. That is not to vote a particular way in a particular case in order to put the person they like in office. And it's also possible for us to sometimes notice when they're being partisan. And Bush v. Gore is a great example of that. In Bush v. Gore, the conservatives on the court, roughly speaking, adopted a broad interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause inconsistent with its original meaning. And the liberals adopted an actually relatively constrained and constricted interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. And in that sense, the court appeared to be acting in a partisan way because that issue was people believed. It turns out not to be been the case. But we believed in those, those days, you know, when I was in the trenches litigating it in Palm Beach County, we believed the court was deciding who was going to be president. And so when the court does that, it's partisan. And we could identify that and criticize that as partisan. That's different than it being political, which, as I was saying, is necessarily the case every time it has to make a hard decision and interpret the Constitution. So I think that's the beginning ground of where we disagree at the level of theory, Sam. And then we could talk a lot. I'm interested to talk about also disagreeing at the level of practice.
1: So one more question before you know Chris can you know get get in on this. Um, I I just want to say I I find that acknowledgement refreshing relative to mainstream legal liberalism, which has often trafficked in the civics conception. Just as an example, I'll mention uh, Justice Stephen Breyer's new book, um, which kind of takes up whether the court it can be apolitical, not just nonpartisan, and concludes that it can and must, or at least must, be believed. By the people, uh, to, that it's doing something that's not political. And, and you're just taking a kind of, you know, much more sophisticated stance that the beginning of wisdom, wherever it leads, has to be that the court is a, a, a political institution. And in, at least in some situations, the, the justices have always been making political choices in interpreting law in one way rather than another. Is that all correct?
3: Yes. I mean, I think we're grownups. We actually have been grownups for a long time in this country, and we've always known the court was political. And if you ask the public, it also knows the court is political. I would add, though, that what I'm saying about political morality being necessary to interpret the Constitution, I mean, it would be awesome if I thought of it, but I didn't. You know, uh, the great legal philosopher Ronald Dworkin is the person who used that terminology most clearly. And, you know, he had some debates with Justice Scalia, where Justice Scalia wanted to insist uh, against this idea of political morality, that the judge's job is just to interpret the law, just, you know, just interpret the law. And the most famously, Scalia gave a series of lectures at Princeton, uh, which were then published um, uh, on interpretation. And Dworkin was one of the respondents. And he said to Scalia, well, you know, Justice Scalia, how do you know that the Constitution should be interpreted by judges whose job it is not to give any political morality to the constitution. The only way you could know that is by having a political theory of how interpretation should occur. It didn't make Scalia very happy, but it's a devastating response. And so I find it richly ironic when liberals and I and progressives want to say that um, the justices should not be political. You know, that's the, that's the conservative position or it was the conservative position of Justice Scalia. And it's not plausible. And in the same way that originalism on its own has, has certain, I wouldn't say it's implausible, but it has certain limitations as a, as a constitutional philosophy. So yeah, we're grownups. We should start with the truth and people know the truth out there in the world. So I, I, I don't quite get, I mean, I understand that Justice Breyer doesn't want the court to be seen as partisan, but I, I don't think we serve ourselves or the country very well by pretending something that's obviously not the case is the case.
1: So, Chris, I'd just like to get a sense of whether you, you, you're, you're in disagreement there, um, because, you know, the risk is that it sounds like you're saying that the court was apolitical and the problem is that it's not temporarily. And it sounds like Noah's saying, well, it always was. And you liked its politics and pretended it was, you know, the answers the justices were giving for your and my side were, were, were not political, but just what the law really is. And Noah's saying that's, that wasn't true and it can't ever be true.
2: Yeah. So I don't know that I, I don't know that I disagree with Noah on that. I, I think one thing that I disagree with him is this, this idea that, that everybody knows that the court is political and we're all grown-ups, right? I think that it's not, it's not that sort of like, I think the court used to be a political and now Now, I think I do think it's more political now or more partisan. I think that's an interesting distinction to sort of think about. But but I think the I think part of the challenge is like this idea, this admittedly quaint idea I was taught in elementary school is one that sort of replicated throughout time. It's not as if like I have never thought about this since since elementary school. Right. I think one of the other points that I made in my testimony is that we have a lot of people sort of from Justice Breyer to law professors to sort of Supreme Court practitioners to journalists who sort of try to try to give the court more legitimacy than I think it deserves by suggesting the court's not political, right? Like right now there's a, you know, some uh, third circuit judges were just on a panel and they said, well, you know, I can't believe one of the justice judges said, I can't believe that the press would even report what party were judges were appointed by in explaining decisions, right? I think that that's not only factual, um, it's also informed some of the outcomes, right? But this idea that journalists didn't used to, and even now as they start to are being criticized for it, I think there is this idea, this notion that our court is apolitical, that I think we're being fed. And I think that by and large, I do think that liberals or progressives have bought that fiction for longer than conservatives have, and I think that that has been part of the challenge in terms of how we have politically organized around the courts. So,
1: so how would you characterize kind of your remedy then? Um, so, it, it, first, you have one that involves an institutional change, and in particular, it 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 does. A, you know, involve adding justices along with some other things, which, you know, provides, a, again, a stark contrast with Noah. But I, I just want you to def- kind of give us your reasons for that remedy, but also explain, like, what it would achieve. Because it seems like we, you know, based on the state of the discussion, we can't say it would, you know, restore the court to being apolitical. We can say it would make it less um you know, less right wing than it has been. Um, And it would undo some of the, of McConnell's actions, which beyond the kind of, you know, decisions that are upsetting, you know, were, were kind of independently outrageous to many on, on, on the progressive end of the spectrum.
2: So, I mean, I think it's a again, like politicals probably, or like whether or not the court more or less political is probably not the right word. But but I do think there's a a theory that if you were to expand the size of the Supreme Court and restore balance and then add term limits, and one of the term limit proposals would be to add justices every two years, so every president would get two justices, the court would be more in balance, right? I think one of the challenges right now is that it's a 6-3 conservative supermajority, even though Democratic presidential candidates have won eight of the nine uh, last elections. It's sort of not re- reflective or representative of the American people. But I think that and at base, I do think that there are a lot of theories for why uh, Congress should passed the Judiciary Act of 2021 and expand the court by four seats. I think that of all of the different Supreme Court proposals, it's the most clearly constitutional. Congress has changed the size of the Supreme Court seven times before. Um, it would take effect right now, right? Even if you thought term limits might establish some long-term equilibrium, um, we're in a situation now where I think our democracy is in peril, and I don't know what the court would look like if you sort of didn't have any balance for the la- for the next fifteen to twenty, how many years it takes if you were to install term limits, um, and I think that really it. I do think that these two Supreme Court seats were stolen from President Obama and from President uh, Biden. And so I think to offset those two seats, you have to add four in order to restore that that balance that's been taken from from Democrats. So I want to ask a quick question here because there's something I'm a
0: little confused about. One thing that comes up in your and Sam's testimony is a claim that the Supreme Court rule or decisions are uh, undemocratic and I was a little. I wanted to press you a little bit on what you mean by that, or and get get Noah's thoughts. Also, is it is it that they are insufficiently representative of public popular opinion? Um, that they're insufficiently accountable. Those would be kind of two classic ideas in democr- the theories of democracy. Um, because all governing institutions have some degree of representation, and some degree of accountability, and none is perfect. They all have some uh um particular logics that explain their decision making. They uh, we. We think the Senate and the House are different from one another in certain respects, even though they're both uh, elected, uh, directly elected at this point. Um, they both have, or um, including the presidency, they have all, you know, elements of, they make decisions in different ways, different processes. And so would things like the fact that the Supreme Court is actually pretty popular as an institution relative to uh, Congress or other governing institutions be a sign that it's not problematic? Um uh, what evidence would you use, not just theory, but evidence to say that the Supreme Court needs reform to make it more
2: uh, democratic? So I, I think the popularity of the Supreme Court is is dropping by the day and sort of may, we're on a trajectory where it may be right there with Congress. But so is everything else, by the way, just for
0: more clear, like literally everything is unpopular. You know, it's they're the only popular American institutions are Amazon
2: and the Federal Reserve. But like literally last year, the Supreme Court had an approval rating of 50, and now it has a disapproval rating of 52, right? Like it's something's happening. And maybe it's a snapshot in time because it's in the aftermath of the Texas abortion ban. But I do think that we'll see. We'll see if this is a trend that's particular to the court. But I also think that having a Supreme Court where a majority of the court was appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, where you have Supreme Court justices who, again, they... Change the Senate changed the rules, who've been confirmed by senators who represent a minority of the country, and who now have been put in place to rule on issues like access to abortion, gun violence prevention, climate change. All of these are like 80-20 issues that are supported by 80% of the American people. Like I think that that's going to be a problem. I think that's going to be a problem is the court rules in ways that are fundamentally unsupported by by the American people, I think that is going to be a bigger threat to its legitimacy than the debate around Supreme Court expansion. And so, I think that um, well, I'll let I'll let Noah get in here, but uh, but that's those are sort of some of the concerns that I. Have.
0: Yeah, let me turn
2: it to you, Noah. So you have this big worry that if the
0: Supreme Court is reformed or changed, or they add members, or they strip its jurisdiction, that there'll be no left, no one left to protect. Um, individual rights and play the role the Supreme Court plays. But we've had lots of institutions that American political institutions have been changed over time in majoritarian ways. Uh, And the sky didn't fall. We used to not directly elect senators, and now we do. Um, What is it particularly about the Supreme Court that the removal of this or change of this would be so dangerous to our governing system?
3: I will answer that, uh, David. Before I do, though, I just want to, I mean, I'm trying to maintain equanimity here, but it's so blatantly obvious to everybody in the country that Democrats who are screaming and yelling about how their seats were stolen and how the court needs fundamental reform, all they mean, you know, had Merrick Garland been confirmed, had Ruth Ginsburg stepped down when she should have stepped down after being diagnosed with multiple very serious cancers and been replaced by someone of similar views then the Supreme Court's balance would look different. Maybe Republicans would then be arguing for reform, potentially in court packing, it's possible. Um, Although they haven't been super loud on that. Um, Preferring to get elected president and control the Senate, the things you're supposed to do to get the Supreme Court. And so the Democrats in my view have zero credibility on this because it's purely outcome driven. So I just wanna say that everybody knows that. And this talk about stolen, it's not a criticism of the Supreme Court, it's either a criticism of Mitch McConnell and the social practices of confirmation, which are perfectly consistent with the constitution. They're just social customs or social practices that he changed. And the fact that Donald Trump was elected. And when you talk about, oh, he was elected by a minority of the people, yes, our constitution through the electoral college enables the president to be elected by a minority. I don't like that. I think we should change it. But that's the problem. The problem is not the Supreme Court. And You know, so just to be really, really clear, the potential very conservative decisions that this Supreme Court may well make may cause people to be very upset about the Supreme Court. But the real cause here is that Democrats, despite being holding a majority position and despite the fact that on issues that are important to Democrats – Um, many of the public, much of the public agrees with it, Democrats failed to use those issues or to deploy those issues to win the presidency and to control the Senate. So that's just a first point that I just think it's really important to keep that in mind. And the reason it's so important is that we're talking about an actual institution, the Supreme Court, and we're talking, let's be blunt, about breaking it. Now, let me explain my framework for how we should think about this. Anytime you have something, let's say you have an old car, okay? It's not like the world's best car, it's not the world's worst car. You have some good memories of that car when it did good things for you. You know, it took you to the prom and that was good, but you know, it broke down on the way to college, you know, full of your bags and that was bad. So it's you know, you've got good and bad in this car. When you try to ask yourself, what would I do if I fundamentally like transformed this car into something else or sold the car or got rid of the car? You just have to ask yourself, okay, what's my alternative? Like what other if I could buy a newer, better car and keep that car Awesome. Time to get a new car. If I'm going to have to walk or bike, there might be some things that I can't do anymore. Okay. So you have to always ask yourself any time in life that you're going to fundamentally change something. What's the alternative? That's the only sensible question. Now, the Supreme Court, much like that old car, has evolved to play a function in the life of the Republic in the same way that I might, for example, move somewhere further from work that I have to drive to because I have the car. Right. You could say, well, you can move again. Yeah, I could move again, but I've arranged my life in relationship to this car. I budget a certain amount of money for gas. You know, I don't have a plug-in for my, you know, that I would need if I had a Tesla, or I don't have the 100 grand to buy a Tesla. Right? There are contexts here where the evolution of your life fits with this institution and therefore fits with this car. So the Supreme Court is like that. So how has our Supreme Court evolved? It's evolved to play a role that no other institution in our system is capable of playing. And that is, roughly speaking, protecting the rule of law to the extent that can be done, protecting equality to the extent that that can be done, and protecting individual liberties and rights. Does it do a perfect job of these things? No, it does not. And there are many instances throughout history when it's failed to do those things, and there will be more in the future. But you have to ask yourself, would Congress, this Congress, be able to do any of those things? Would it have an interest in doing those things? No, it doesn't, and it won't. Could you have designed it differently? Sure. Would that have been better? Probably. But that's, I'm sorry to sound with those hypotheticals like Steve Breyer, but yeah, that, that would have been a better way to design things. It's not what we got. Will the president be the one to protect fundamental civil liberties? We just elected Donald Trump president, and we might again, you know, heaven forfend. So it's obvious to everybody that the other institutions that we have could not do these jobs. And the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't do them perfectly is not a reason to not have it. Now, my last point is just how, breaking, how packing the court would break the court and block it from doing these things. And this is one is maybe the trickiest. So let me just try to explain why I think it's the case. If the Democrats packed the court, and this is a big fantasy because you'd have to have not just a majority in the Senate, but a big majority. And you'd have to think that the government, the public wouldn't make you pay a price for it. But let's imagine, let's follow this fantasy. If the Democrats packed the court, the moment the Republicans had the opportunity to do so, they would pack the court. Then the Democrats would do it. Then the Republicans would do it. Right? That's, and anyone who tells me otherwise, I just, I'm just not going to believe. I mean, you might have this fantasy that the Democrats are going to have permanent control of all the branches of government. I've heard that fantasy before. It was really popular in the Obama years. Then Donald Trump got elected. So, you know, that fantasy is a, is a laughable fantasy at our, for, in our present moment. Um, and I'm, I'm terrified by the people who seem to be willing to entertain it when they talk about court packing, not imagining that immediately the Republicans will do the same. So if the Republicans pack it when they can and the Democrats pack it when they can, the upshot will be that the people who are being appointed are being appointed to use partisan political judgment, not just political judgment on the meaning of the Constitution but partisan judgment in voting with their party because they will have been put there by their party to vote a certain way on party issues. And it's just not the case that the current Supreme Court justices on the left or the right are in that sense put there for narrowly partisan reasons. Now, why? I've just said they were political. So how can I say that they're not partisan? It is because they have an aspiration based on their professional identities and their relationship with each other and their reputation as justices not to not be political, they don't have that aspiration, but to not be partisan. And I'll give you a concrete example, a real world example, and that is the 2016, sorry, the 2020 election. Many Democrats were very worried that the Supreme Court would give the election to Donald Trump. Donald Trump seemed to believe there was a chance the Supreme Court would give, that, give him that election. The Supreme Court did not come anywhere near giving the election to Donald Trump. And that is not because the three Supreme Court justices appointed by Donald Trump hate Donald Trump. We don't know exactly what they think about him personally, but they probably liked him and felt some degree of loyalty to him. After all, he put them on the Supreme Court. They didn't come anywhere near doing it. They did not want to be permanently seen for the rest of their lives as sniveling, you know, sycophantic people. They wanted to be the thing they had aspired to be since they were very young people, Supreme Court justices with the prestige and power and self-consciousness associated with that role. And so they didn't do it and they weren't near doing it. And so that is a concrete example to show how the aspiration to nonpartisanship protects the court. But if you make the justices political appointees, just like the people in Congress, they will act like political appointees, just like the people in Congress. And they will no longer do things like Neil Gorsuch did when he voted to extend, and I use the word extend advisedly, the protections of anti-discrimination law to gay and trans people. I'm thrilled that he did that. I'm thrilled that he did it. He doesn't particularly, I don't think, ideologically, think it's so important to protect the rights of gay and trans people. He thought that that was a correct interpretation of the law. And he also thought that it would make him an important and great justice, which arguably it has done. So, you know, that kind of willingness to act against partisan voting preferences is part of the institutional framework that we have with all of its imperfections. And I don't think we'd be better off if we threw that out. Then we'd have a Supreme Court that not, would not give us a decision like Bostock. We'd have a Supreme Court that would have given the election to Donald Trump, and we would be a much weaker republic as a consequence. And progressives should get that. That's my punchline here. Progressives should get that they need the Supreme Court a lot more than conservatives do, because progressives are always trying to expand rights above and beyond what the general public wants. And for that reason, I mean, I'm not saying Sam would prefer the progressives not view the world that way. And I think I tend to agree with Sam on that point. But as it currently exists, the progressive movement is very reliant on courts and it's very reliant on elite opinion. And if you want to be reliant on elite liberal opinion in order to get advances like gay rights and trans rights, you need the Supreme Court progressives much more than conservatives do. So if you break it, you will not have it anymore. You're throwing the car on the scrap heap. Sorry, that was very long-winded, but I, I meant every word of it.
1: No, it was great, and I, I I do eventually want to give Chris an opportunity to to respond, but of course I've been triggered. You know, the co-host has his an interest in this topic, uh, which you know, forgive me, but so let me just say a couple of things, and 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 get a little bit more from Noah. Um, so I just want to go back to the very beginning, you know, because I I I I really appreciate Noah's acknowledgement you know, that, you know, civics is wrong. The court's making political choices. I sort of agree with Chris though, that not enough people know it. I think if they did um, or they, you know, they know it at one level and, and, and not another, you know, they, they, you know, might just have a good reason to, to, to shift the, you know, who's making those decisions, not because the Supreme court's popular, but because These, this, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. Um, we, we expect our laws to be made by legislatures, um, not under the guise of interpretation. Um, at at least not totally and not in, in the extraordinary ways that it, that happens now. Um, and, and so I just have a very different sense of the problem than thinking that's about, you know, the procedural irregularities that Mitch McConnell allegedly introduced or just undesired outcomes, uh, because there's this question, who should be making the law? Uh, now, Noah, you say that uh, the, the car, uh, you know, it has to be judged based on whether there's an alternative. But, but, you know, I, I just think you're idealizing, um, you know, the Supreme Court with respect to what you see as its core mission. First, the rule of law, but, you know, that's begging the question, uh, unless you mean like the very low bar of like, you know, not approving a self-coup. And then we get to, you know, individual rights and, you know, some form of, of civic equality, um, but you know, it it doesn't seem like there's tons to write home about on those fronts, um, including relative to uh, leg- legislatures in recent history. It's not nothing. You cite Bostock, a, a statutory decision, and you could throw in a, a you know constitutional law, um, gay marriage. But otherwise, it it doesn't seem like it's the kind of bulwark that you 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 seem to think. And what I'm most worried about is that, you know, the the suggestion is kind of there's no alternative. Um, and there I there I'm I, I just want to throw out the possibility, even if you're right about court packing, that it would just be done again, that there are these other remedies that don't break the court. That we can modestly reform the court to transfer some of its authority, maybe leaving it some to play the role that you suggest. So it's it's not leave it the way it is uh, uh, or get rid of it. That seems just melodramatic. Uh, The real choice is, you know, can we tweak it? Uh, in, in various ways. And, and I guess I'm wondering, like, it seems like the debate between you is, is, is about um, kind of wholesale change versus doing nothing. And I, I'm, I'm just, I can't, I can't understand why we should stick with that kind of dichotomy. Into the breach step stem when the moderate.
3: <laughs> I will respond to each of those points very briefly. They're all great points. First, on the public view of the court, take abortion. Every conservative in America believes that the Supreme Court wrongly decided Roe v. Wade and knows that the way to change that is to appoint conservative justices. Every liberal in the country knows that there are a lot of states in the country where people would pass laws, have passed laws, that prohibit abortion absent the Supreme Court's protection, and therefore that we need Supreme Court justices who will stand for this issue. The youngest school child old enough to know that that have heard of abortion rights knows this. So, to my mind, that is a pr- proof positive of people understanding the political nature of the Supreme Court when it comes to our most controversial interpretations of the constitution. Two, uh, is the court a bulwark? The alternative is Poland or Hungary. Okay, places where um, autocratic rulers begin to treat the courts as adjuncts to them. Donald Trump was no different than the Polish president or uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary in terms of the things that he was willing to do and tried to do, and the court not perfectly, but to a significant degree, stopped him. So the Muslim travel ban, which was outrageous, immoral, and vile, was rejected twice by the lower courts and approved by the Supreme Court only in a much watered-down version. It was a mistake for the court to do it, and I believe that Chief Justice Roberts later realized it was a mistake. He thought he was in an old-fashioned negotiation with an executive. He was wrong, and he responded by blocking Trump from putting a citizenship question on the census he even blocked Trump in a quite questionable legal decision in my view from um, uh, from killing the DACA program entirely. Um, you know, These are the kinds of bulwark decisions, and they didn't hand the election over to Donald Trump. You call that a low bar, it's not a low bar. It's the only set of bars that matter for the preservation of constitutional democracy. And you would have, if we'd had this conversation before the November 2016 election, I would have been the one saying, oh, come on, like we're not gonna elect Donald Trump. We're not gonna be in that situation. We're not gonna have somebody who's that much of a threat to democracy. That was wrong. Um, we were. And the fact that we came through it to the extent we have come through it, um, still a republic, not a perfect one, has a lot to do with the courts. Last but not least, on the the modest reform, Sam, you know, I am with David and, and loving to hear Sam Moyne the moderate. Um you know, it's the first time you've, I've ever heard Sam say that it's a benefit of something that it would be only modest and moderate, but okay, I guess I want to know, how can those moderate reforms satisfy the progressive hounds baying for the blood of the justices? They can't. Any reform that doesn't you know block the court from overturning Roe um, is not going to satisfy the people who are looking for fundamental reform. So you know, a little jurisdiction stripping here or there, not going to do it. Now, a, a constitutional amendment for age limit for age limits, fine by me. I think it'd be great. I think it's terrible that we have a death watch for Supreme Court justices. It's it's a bad way to run a run a republic. Um, it's morally questionable. It's ethically nasty. I'd be all for that, but that would be would not satisfy anybody who's seeking reform because it's nonpartisan. And we all know, Sam, that what the reformers want is to reverse the fact that Donald Trump was elected and that Mitch McConnell controlled the Senate. Democrats blew it. And now they want to find a solution. I understand that that's human nature, but that solution shouldn't be worse than the problem that is being faced. And I have the view for reasons I've explained that these solutions, the ones that would be satisfactory to people because they would reverse things are much worse than the harms that are ahead of us. And they're also, last but not least, they're bound to be temporary. Let's say the court overturns Roe, which would be awful, terrible, Terrible constitutional decision, morally disastrous, a crisis for the country. And let's say with Democrats pack the court in consequence, and that they reinstated Roe, that would be a temporary solution until such time as the Republicans pack the court and reverse Roe again. What Democrats need to do under those circumstances is go out and convince the people of Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi of the necessity of protecting a woman's right to choose. That is the correct moral view, and people need to be convinced of it. So, and I think Sam agrees that one of the reasons that Democrats have not spent the last fifty years nearly trying to do that is that they could rely on the idea that the elite Supreme Court justices would side with them. Now that they may not be able to do so, you know they're belatedly realizing that they should actually, in a democracy, go in and convince people of the rightness of the right to choose. So that's what needs to happen. Chris, are you a bay wolf?
2: I have so many thoughts, I don't even know where to start. So look, I think that, um, so well now we'll go back like 15 minutes in the conversation because Sam rudely jumped in. I, I think that um, I agree with you that if Merrick Garland had been confirmed, we'd have a much different conversation, right? I think that part of this is, really it is. it's Mitch McConnell's fault, it's Senate Republicans' fault, and and not John Roberts, but I don't think that that means that the court is not broken or needs to be fixed, right? Whose fault it is is somewhat irrelevant, right? If you're driving your car and I run into you and total it, you're not gonna say, I'm not gonna get my car fixed because it wasn't my fault, it wasn't the car's fault. Your car's broken, even though I'm the Mitch McConnell here who's broken it, right? And so I do think that whoever's fault it is, I don't think the court works right now. And I think that if the election were closer to 537 votes, instead of tens of thousands of votes across three different states. I don't know, I, have, I don't have the confidence that you do that the Supreme Court wouldn't have stepped in and wouldn't have done something more dramatic that would have had an outcome on the presidency. But I also think more fundamentally, one of the problems we're seeing is that this court is undermining democracy, right? The the ability to go in and choose your own legislator is, is, and vote for somebody is harder because the Supreme Court is greenlit partisan gerrymandering. The Supreme Court's made it harder to vote. They struck down part of the Voting Rights Act. Sort of state across state is limiting the right to vote. So then this idea that all you've got to go do is is convince other people that you're right, um, I don't think is true. I think that Republicans are trying to entrench minority rule in a way that's gonna be disastrous. And so this this, I think that that's a noble idea. We could just convince enough people to vote. But I also think you're sort of presupposing a lot, like this idea that that everybody understands that, that the right to abortion is determined by the Supreme Court, which is determined by the president. That's not That's not the real world for most people, right? Most people don't understand that Supreme Court justices are nominated by the president and confirmed by a majority of the Senate and what the sort of how those basic frameworks work, right? Like that's not... I think you're you're sort of assuming a lot in terms of how people understand the impact the court has on everyday life. And, and I think as it happens with a lot of people that when you have rights that you've, been lived, you've lived with your entire life, that the idea that they might be under threat is unfathomable. I think that's what makes what's happening in Texas right now so different. The fact that right now uh, not 85 to 90% of abortions are banned in Texas right now. I don't think that that's anything that anybody had a concept was possible. Um, even people in Texas sort of three weeks ago. And so I think that I think there's a lot going on here in terms of what we have to do to fix the court. And I don't doubt that that if Democrats add seats to the court, that that Republicans will add seats later. I think it will be. I think you're right that it's far fetched to think that we're going to expand the Supreme Court tomorrow or even, you know, several months from now. But I do think that the Supreme Court is fundamentally forcing the hand of Democratic lawmakers. I think that if it overturns Roe, if it allows concealed carry, if it overturns climate change, if there are these issues that show that it's fundamentally undermining what Congress and the president that's been elected to do is trying to accomplish, I do think you're going to have a greater a greater need to respond and expand and balance the court. I think it will be fundamentally different to expand the court to preserve Roe, which is supported by 80% of the American people, versus expanding the court to overturn it. So I don't think that we're gonna be in an even, you know, in a back and forth, even response as to sort of where we end up with the equilibrium, because I think again, what what we're trying to preserve and what this Supreme Court is trying to undermine is fundamentally, is fundamentally supported by the American people. Um, I also think um that there's this idea you guys are the I'm not the law professor here you guys are it's weird that I'm on a legal theory podcast but there's the idea of of constitutional hardball right I think one of the reasons why we're getting to this place where there is greater and greater I think overreach by Mitch McConnell is that they stole a seat from President Obama and Democrats didn't respond. They changed the rules and allowed Gorsuch to be confirmed by a simple majority. Democrats didn't respond. They confirmed Kavanaugh then without, without I mean, setting aside even the, the sexual assault allegations, right? the whole issue before Kavanaugh was even nominated was Mitch McConnell said, don't nominate Kavanaugh. He's got millions of pages of records. We don't have that amount of time. They never even looked at his records. They never looked at his archive record. They didn't even look into these allegations of perjury. They confirmed them anyways, right? Democrats didn't respond. So then why not, if you're Mitch McConnell, why not eight days before election, ram through a Supreme Court confirmation in record time in modern days, even though 60 million Americans have already voted. Democrats, you don't think Democrats would respond. I think that if there had been a credible threat that Democrats might respond by expanding the Supreme Court, McConnell would have pocketed a 5-4 majority rather than the threat of being on a 7-6 minority, but he doesn't have that threat. And so why not grab another seat? Why not make it a 6-3 Supreme Court where John Roberts goes from being the most influential justice to Brett Kavanaugh, right? I think that unless Democrats engage in this, we're gonna be in a cycle where it gets worse and worse, but only on one side.
1: Noah, do you wanna say something in response to you know, Chris's arguments?
3: I mean, I, I don't really disagree with Chris that there's a possibility that if the Supreme Court reverses Roe, that there might be a lot of popular pushback, including from Democrats. And I actually think that one of the realities of the possibility of court packing out in the backdrop is to press uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett and maybe even Justice Korsuch, although he seems to care less about these things, to think about whether their win, if they get Roe v. Wade reversed, will be very long-lasting. So I do think that in practice, um, the background threat of court packing, which let's be honest, has never been accomplished in the modern era, and the the, the statistic about how the chain the Supreme Court has changed in size over time, you know, those changes are all before the middle of the ninth or second the third part of the nineteenth century, and they were probably not in most cases for Outcome-oriented reasons. There's one potential footnote to that, basically misses the point that it's really hard to pack the court. But the the fact that there is some possibility has to be in the back of their minds because they also don't want their victory to be merely temporary, and they also don't want to break the institution of the Supreme Court. And so you can be sure that when Brett Kavanaugh thinks about what vote he's going to cast, uh, you know, in the upcoming definitive Supreme Court case on whether to overturn Roe. He is going to be thinking about whether, by casting that vote, he's going to break the Supreme Court. That is going to be—he's going to be making a calculus based on the politics, which is a very complicated calculus. So, yeah, I mean, it is out there—the threat—and I'm not—I'm not convinced that the threat of court packing is a bad thing in that way. It's good to have it out there in the backdrop, and I said as much in my testimony. In circumstances where the Supreme Court is so out of keeping with the political values of the great majority of the country and remains so for a long time, you do need some check on the Supreme Court. It's just be hard to pull off. And the question then is, are we there yet? And, you know, this conversation that we're having now might look very different next June after the Supreme Court has potentially overturned Roe. Then my own views might begin to shift depending on the circumstances. I don't think that you never pack the court. I think you don't pack the court unless the need is fundamental by virtue of the disconnection between the Supreme Court's decisions and the broad public will. You know, last on the you know, on the abortion rights question, you know, it's true that people like Roe v. Wade on the whole, those statistics are real statistics, but it's also true that the majority of voters in Texas, Mississippi, Mississippi, Louisiana, lots of other places really did want to pass laws for probably more than just symbolic reasons that would block abortion. Um, Maybe they didn't really mean it. Maybe they just wanted it for symbolic reasons. I guess we're going to find that out in the near future. Um, But it's too glib to say that partisan gerrymandering is what stands in the way of Democrats getting different outcomes in those states. In many states in the country, it's not a partisan gerrymander that's driving of uh, election, uh, driving legislative decisions that are, you know, that are actively, um, you know, that are actively anti-abortion. Again, we we will see. It may be that if ordinary people realize they have to internalize the costs of voting for legislators who vote against abortion by actually not being able to get abortions that their views will change. That's a definite possibility. But of course, if that happened, then from Sam's perspective, for example, that would be a good thing in his view. I mean, he would feel sad about it, I imagine about the people who couldn't get abortion in the meantime, but he wants our democracy to operate and not for and for progressives not to rely on the Supreme Court to pull their irons out of the fire, you know, all the time. And that's a view that Felix Frankfurter very strongly expressed, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, and I I share it. I just hope we don't have to get to that situation.
1: So since you've teed that up so beautifully, let me uh, ask Noah a, a, kind of a last question. It as you say, it's 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 you know hypothetical, but you know not that implausible that it it will that will will kind of get there if the court overrules Roe. From some perspectives, in a sense, we're already there because it's overruled a lot of other um, things in the past. I mean, it's. Um, you know it, it, it's it's invalidated some laws Congress has passed that look like they are about protecting individual rights or advancing some conception of substantive justice and the court wouldn't let it happen and And we agree that in in that scenario, uh, what's critical is to go back you know and convince enough fellow citizens to forge a, a big enough national majority that may include, getting into locales and building local majorities where Democrats have, have been losing. The question is what happens after that? So, you know, in, in, it sounds like your preferred scenario is, is that either there be a a threat of court packing, um, that would lead the court to self-correct as it did in 1937. And, or there will be, you know, Democrats who accept the slow change of appointing new justices, uh, as happened in the later 30s and, and 40s, and constitutional law gets updated in response. Why not take another view, though? I mean, if you've built that big enough majority, uh, there, there are other remedies. You could pass a, um, a, a, an abortion rights statute under 14th Amendment Section 5 power you could even protect it by stripping the court of the jurisdiction to invalidate it. Or uh, for, for that law or lots of other you know, rights protecting laws, you could you know, impose a supermajority rule, which would just make it difficult for a conservative majority on the Supreme Court to invalidate such, such laws. Why, why not go that way? Because in terms of the international comparisons, Hungary and Poland aren't the only ones out there. In other liberal democracies, there's not as much contention in and through the higher judiciary because the power that judiciary exercises is, has not become the highest prize. Uh, and so why not strive for that outcome rather than kind of relive the 30s and 40s again and leaving the court, let's say, in charge for this, you know, the, the kind of foreseeable future.
3: Couple of quick things. Um, thanks for that, Sam. So first, I actually think you'd have to go back certainly to the 30s, nearly nearly 100 years ago, 90 plus years ago, or even potentially before then, for a situation where the Supreme Court actively reversed a long-standing precedent that protected individual liberty. If they flip Roe v. Wade, there will not have been anything comparable in at least a century. And probably longer. So even some of the you know, best conservative decisions that conservatives like the most did not reverse a well-established liberty enjoyed by a substantial number of Americans in Shelby the County. I mean, absolutely disagree. Absolutely disagree. That that the Voting Rights Act's preclearance provisions, which were reversed, you have to be an extremely you know, clever and sophisticated political theorist to insist that um, those provisions put in place. To protect people's right to vote um, via the pre-clearance of changes in districts, that the removal of the pre-clearance requirement—it I didn't repeal. I mean, you, you have to be a kind of partisan Democrat, frankly, to think that that kind of a change affected the basic liberties of Americans. It didn't. In the most aggressive version, it eroded the value of the equal vote that people have. In the most aggressive formulation, which, by the way, under our system, we don't have when we vote for the Senate anyway. You know, I mean, our Senate is fundamentally not a one person, one vote system. So, you know, I I deeply disagree that it's anything slightly comparable. And that's why this step for the Supreme Court is going to be radically different than what it's done before. And why, as I said, you can be sure that Brett Kavanaugh is losing sleep over it. So that's a preliminary point. Second, a federal abortion rights statute. Great. I, I would support that in 30 seconds. You know, we should have done it many, many years ago when the Democrats had the capacity to do it instead of relying on the Supreme Court. you know. So yes, I mean, that would be terrific. That said, I wouldn't support trying to put a provision in it to make it harder for the Supreme Court to overturn it, because that again will become a norm where every time Congress passes a law that is rights restrictive, it will make it difficult to overturn it. And so then you're deeply undermining the capacity of the court to protect Rights and liberties. I believe that would become that would very quickly become standard. Um, I also think that this Supreme Court would certainly invalidate a jurisdiction stripping provision, um, and probably invalidate a supermajority requirement. And secretly, among you know the four of us and the listeners, it might be right to so invalidate it. And all liberals used to think that. You know, Owen Fiss, my my teacher, you know, the kind of liberal lion of his generation would tell you right away that this, if the Congress tries to block the Supreme Court from enforcing constitutional rights, it lacks the authority to do that because the inherent power of the court is to protect constitutional rights. And Owen is 100% correct about that. So I guess that leads to this question, Sam, again, of you know why not try to change the role of the court? And there, here, what we're really coming to is a kind of, I wouldn't say it's a philosophical agreement between us. It's more like a dispositional view of Like what happens when you break something that exists? And here I am actually more of a Burkean conservative and you're a bit more of a Jacobin. Um, You know, I think that when you break institutions, it's really hard to predict what's going to come out on the other side and replace them. And when an institution is fulfilling an important function, even if we could have built it a different way, even if it would be actively better to have another one do it, I think sticking with the institution that you have to the extent that you can is the far safer course when real people's rights are at stake. I am genuinely worried about women in Texas. And yeah, the Supreme Court may fail to protect them, in which case we're going to have to have a serious, take a serious look at, at, you know, what institutions can protect them. But I wouldn't give up on the Supreme Court as an institution capable of doing what it's doing, because in our system, those other institutions don't do very well. And- You know, yes, maybe in some countries where they've got really well established democratic norms and a more liberal population, they don't have to rely on their courts. Good for them. I think that's great. It's better to be in that arrangement than to be in our arrangement. Frankfurter was right that relying on a liberal Supreme Court to deliver rights would weaken the public's capacity and interest to protect individual rights. He predicted it. He laid it out in detail. He was excoriated for it by liberals and progressives who said, oh, you're some kind of a conservative now. And he kept on saying, I'm not a conservative. Remember when we liberals were against activist an activist court? I'm warning you. He was completely correct. But now it's happened. And I don't see our national capacity to chew, you know suddenly fill ourselves with the kind of civic virtue that would enable our elected congressman and our elected president to stand up for uh, equality, rights, and liberties. And by the way, I don't only mean a Donald Trump. I think there are also circumstances where a democratic president would be inclined to play fast and loose um, just because that's not the job of the president in our system. And it hasn't been for nearly a century. And so we're out of the habit. And when you get out of that habit, that's the way it goes.
0: So Chris, do you want to have a last word before we, uh, before we close on
2: that? Yeah, so I think that um, I think that if there is a sort of fundamental disagreement, it may just be a, a temporal one right now. I think that, Noah's point right now is like, if you break the institution, then what happens? I think the institution's already been broken. I think Mitch McConnell has already broken it. And that's why I think we need to expand the court. And so I sort of take the point, I think sort of as I started, you know, started, about there's a continuum here. I think that my tipping point came much earlier. Some people's will come much later. I just don't have confidence in this court. I think that we're on a collision path and this is gonna happen and that we're going to need to expand the Supreme Court. And so that's why I think sort of seeing it down the road, I think that we should sort of prevent the harms if we can, but it's certainly understanding that we there aren't enough people broadly and certainly not in Congress who are there yet um, to make that case and, and be able to do it. But I think that I think that, um, you know, I I sort of take Noah's point that he didn't say never court packing, but not now. And I think that that's probably right for a lot of people. Um, But I think the fact that we're having this conversation is in of itself important because I do think that the conversation is going to continue to evolve over the next, you know, certainly over the course of this Supreme Court term and then sort of in the ones to come. Well, this has been excellent. I mean, it seems like there
1: is a kind of narrow difference in a way between the two of you. It's, you know, one is in a, in in a sense catastrophizing about the present state of, of the Supreme court and the other about what could happen if you mess with it and catastrophizing about the future, but leaving open, uh, the need to, to intervene. So we'll have to reconvene, uh, if and when, uh, future you know heads heads the way that that many of us think it will we're really grateful to both chris and noah for taking their valuable time and being so illuminating along the way
3: thanks guys and thanks chris that was a i thought we did a good job of modeling disagreement among people who broadly agree on a lot of things
2: thanks and thanks for having me